Welcome to the JMD podcast, possibly the most popular and also only podcast dedicated to the fascinating world of inherited metabolic disease. I'm James Nurse, the journal's social media editor, and I invite you to join me as I speak with our wonderful authors about recent publications. Whether you're here for more detail on your special interest or just trying to catch up on all those papers you meant to read, I hope we've got you covered. So listen on as I learn more about key terms and definitions in acute porphyrias. something that adds to the challenge of managing rare disease is the need to achieve agreement about different facets of often very rare things. That's why papers like the one we're discussing today can be so important. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Svara Sandberg of the Norwegian Porphyria Centre and Department of Medical Biochemistry and Pharmacology at Haukland University Hospital in Bergen, Norway. And Professor Sandberg is also president of the European Porphyria Network, or EPNET. He's joining me to talk about the recent paper, Key Terms and Definitions in Acute Porphyrias, Results of an International Delphi Consensus Led by the European Porphyria Network. Svara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, this isn't our first podcast on the porphyrias, and I suspect it won't be our last. We have already discussed a process for simplifying the approach to diagnostics, and today we're discussing specific definitions for the acute porphyrias. Before we get to those, could I ask... In an ideal world, what would all clinicians know about acute porphyria? You know, porphyria is often referred to as obscure diseases with confusing names, considered only when the need for diagnosis is desperate. So it's something that not a lot of clinicians know about. So I think it's most important to know where they can get advice. And at least in Europe, most countries have their porphyria center, and you can find these centers on the EPNET webpage, and then you can take contact. I think that's the most important advice. And this is also the advice we give to the patients that they shouldn't expect a clinician can much about porphyrias, but they should give them information where they can find more about porphyrias. And obviously that's for the patients who know they've got porphyria. Absolutely. For the clinicians who we are hoping going to make the diagnosis, what do they need to know? Um, well, you see there are two main symptoms in porphyria. The one is the photosensitivity. So when they're exposed to light, they can have the skin rashes or skin eruptions. So then they should think about porphyrias. If that's a possibility, especially what is, for example, a child, two, three years old, sitting crying in the sunshine because of pain in the skin. And the pain comes before the rash or the eruptions. So this is something being taken for actually psychological things and so on. Why do the child cry when they're sitting in the nice sunshine? But it's actually because they have skin pain. And the other typical porphyria is uh, patients with acute pain in the abdomen or stomach that cannot be explained otherwise, that can be a sign of porphyrias. But of course, the stomach pain is so common that you have to sort out a lot of other diseases before you should actually think about porphyria. But if you have a patient coming with repeated Stomach pains are so severe that they have to get morphine or something like that, and they have to be hospitalized. Then you should definitely think about the porphyria, and especially if they also develop some paresis or paralysis and so on. That's important. Okay. And so given what we know, why do we need to agree these definitions? Well, after now, there has been a lot of diversity in the papers and actually also in studies when it comes to how you define porphyria. What do they mean with latent porphyria? What do they mean with asymptomatic porphyria, etc.? So, so people have used these terms in different ways. So we felt there was a need 
to agree on some definition. Also because in AppNet and Worldwide, we wanted to make um, evidence-based guidelines. And if you're making evidence-based guidelines, we actually know what we are talking about. Otherwise, it's a difficult way to do it. So we had to start by making the definitions, and then we could make the guidelines. And actually, to do this whole process, I have to underline that there are two things that are very important. One is that we align with specialists in method development for making guidelines and definitions. And the other thing is the whole Porphyria community actually agreeing that this is a good thing to do because we wanted to make a consensus, and a consensus is of no worth if it's not a real consensus between all people who are working in this specific discipline. I think that's um, that's the important things. I mean, you use the word agree there. I'm a social media editor, and if social media has taught me anything, it's that no one seems to be able to agree on anything. <laughs> How did you go about finding a agreement here? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. It's not actually easy. So. So I can tell you how we started. We started by a couple of people, then the method team and uh, some of the specialists in uh, Porphyria started to make some draft definitions. And then we sent this to, uh, I think it was 20 or 30 specialists in Porphyria. And we said, do you agree or do you not agree? And if you don't agree with this, how should we improve it? And then we got some feedback. And then we amended all the definitions. And we actually sent it out to every member of the AppNet organization. And they are located all over the world, from South Africa to US to England to Europe to Asia and so on. And then we got a lot of responses. And you can see the responses in this paper, where there's a map where the responses are coming from. And again, we amended the definitions according to the responses we got. But of course, it was not that easy because some of the responses were contradictory. So we have to make a balance. But after we are done, then we actually started on what we call the Delphi process, which is uh, an accepted process of making a consensus. And we said, that, okay, we have to assemble a group of people that are experts. And I think it was 35 people. And they consist of clinicians, of laboratory people, all experienced in porphyria and some patients. And thus we had actually a Zoom meeting where we discussed the whole process and what we wanted to achieve. And we said, that, okay, we can achieve more than 75% consensus or agreement for each definition, then we will be satisfied, then we will stop. And then we sent it out to this whole expert panel, and we got feedback, and I think we got more than 75% in all the cases, except for three. And then we amended these a little bit, and we also amended one of the definitions where there came some good suggestions, even though the agreement was more than 75%. And then we sent it out again to the whole expert panel, and we got the consensus for all the definitions that are above 75%. And I think that's good. And I think one of the actually most important thing that I discovered was that people got more and more eager to achieve a consensus, and they actually became more interested in having common definitions. Whereas in the start, there were some people that were a little bit skeptical how important this was, but it seemed that the whole Porphyria community actually thought that was now a good idea. And I, at least from the response from the paper that they're not published, they're extremely happy that we were able to do it and that we were able to 
to publish it. So in the end, you obviously agreed these nine definitions. Um, some of them are slightly more wordy than others. And I would urge anyone listening to have a look at the final paper to, to look at the detail within those. I wonder if we could briefly discuss some of them and describe the principles for how they were established. Are there any you particularly wanted to highlight? Yeah, I can just go a, a little bit through the definitions. First of all, I was underlined that we are not making definitions for all types of porphyria. Because as we started with in this podcast, we said that there were two, in principle, different types of porphyria. Porphyria with skin symptoms and uh, porphyria with acute abdominal pain, which we call the acute porphyrias. And these acute porphyrias, they are actually characterized by the patients having suddenly acute symptoms. So they can be healthy and then in a couple of days, they develop more and more stomach pain or a recess or something like that, and they are hospitalized. So we call these acute porphyrias, which actually consist of three different types of porphyria, but they all have this common symptom together. So the definitions deal with acute porphyrias. There are a lot of ways this could have been done, and I'm not saying actually that the way we have done it is the only correct way, but I think, again, to underline, it's most important that we have a common understanding about what we are talking about. And then we divided them into those two groups, what patients have had acute attacks during the last two years. So this was uh, arbitrary, actually, why choosing two years rather than three years or one year. But this was in some way consensus about. And then those who have had no acute attacks the last two years, we divided them into two groups, those who had never had acute attacks. And we said that these have latent porphyria. And then you can wonder, okay, people who have never had an attack, well, how could we discover those people? And we discover those people by doing, for example, family studies, since these are inherited diseases, and we can look at the DNA and the mutation that they have. And then we divided this group actually into two different groups. One group in which we find a pathogenic mutation in a family member, and we call it latent at risk. And nowadays, they are doing more and more next-generation sequencing, and you have your whole genome examined, for example, in newborn screening, and then they accidentally can find some of these pathogenic mutations. But we have indications that in this group, there is not very often a phenotype. They don't often have attacks. So they may have the possibility, but they have more seldom attacks compared to those who are family members. And we call them late and low-risk patients. This was a big discussion, and I think it's okay to clarify this. Then we have some patients that have the mutation, and they also excrete some porphyrins in the urine. The urine is a very important material to examine for porphyrias. And if they have high excretion of porphyrins in the urine, we call them asymptomatic high excreter. If they, in addition, have symptoms that can resemble porphyria symptoms, but they are not acute, we call them symptomatic high excretors. So this is the case. And we also have uh, one group that had, for example, at least one attack during the last two years. They don't have any uh, symptoms now, but they don't have any high excretion of porphyrins in their year. And we call them asymptomatic acute porphyria in remission. So in the two um, categories that have many attacks during the last two years, we divide them into those who have four or more attacks during the last two years, and we call them recurrent acute porphyria. And the reason for this is that there are no drugs that are developed that are actually aiming on just those patients. 
to give them prophylactic treatment. And the others who have one to three attacks during the last two years period, we call sporadic acute bacteria. And the way you've talked through those, obviously there's a flowchart within the paper that gives you an indication of how that all breaks down. I mean, I'm always keen to try and ground podcasts around clinical disease. What do these definitions mean for those working with, and, and I guess living with the disease? But I think that all of our definitions are made for clinicians and they are made to make guidelines, of course, so that we can try to define what categories of patients should be treated in what way. So, so they are clinically important. It's not the biochemistry that is the most important thing. It's that they have clinically important signs that we can target when we are actually dealing with the patients. For example, when we are now developing guidelines, which is the next step, we have to actually discuss what is the evidence for treating or give prophylactic advice for somebody who has latent porphyria, who has no symptoms. And because uh, a lot of these acute attacks, they are actually elicited by stress, by certain drugs, by fasting, for example. So we usually give advice to patients with a high risk of the attacks what they should avoid to avoid having attacks. But this is just to show that the definitions are clinically important when we are now making up the guidelines, which is the next step in this process. And you can also see from the way I, I explained the definition that the patient can move from one category to another. The patient having been categorized as a latent porphyria, when that patient has an attack, she or he will be categorized to symptomatic porphyria. And again, maybe a recurrent or a sporadic symptomatic porphyria. So a patient is not placed in one group forever. It's a dynamic process. So obviously it's important, as you said, for guideline development. You've obviously mentioned within what you've said that there are gaps within the treatment approach for porphyrias. You're the president of the European Porphyria Network. What's next for the disease? Well, the next for the disease, in line with what we are talking about here, is actually to make these guidelines. So that's, this is one important step for APNET. And the other important step for APNET is actually to transform APNET to IPNET. European to international. So we are going from a European organization to an international organization. And this is um, important because we want to reach out to a lot of countries that are not European. And we have developed what we call um, a working group, international working group for humanitarian support for porphyria, which shall reach out to countries and clinicians all over the world that don't have the same possibility to diagnose and treat porphyrias as we have, for example, here in Europe and US and some countries in Asia and so on. And then we will try to support them with advice where they can send samples to have them analyzed to get the diagnosis and how they should treat the patient. And we have an alliance with industry to see if we can make a cooperational effort to facilitate it. So I think this is actually the most important things that we are dealing with now. I think that's really exciting to hear about because I think one of the big issues with inherited metabolic disease is that it is heavily resource dependent and therefore there's big access issues across the world for many countries where the patients are not receiving the support they should get. Yeah, absolutely. And in some countries they say, oh no, we don't have porphyria. We don't have this disease in our country. And so when we start looking for it, they have as many porphyria patients as any other country. 
Of course, it varies a little bit uh, since these are inheritable diseases. It varies a little bit around the world, but they are definitely present in all the different countries. Well, there's a there's a famous saying in medicine, if you don't take a temperature, you can't find a fever. And I guess if you don't look for porphyria, you don't find porphyria. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's especially true for porphyria, I would say, because it's, it's, it is a rare disease. Although we who are working about the things, it's so common that everybody should know about it. That's not the case. And that's why I actually started this podcast saying that the most important thing is, okay, you have to, for the clinician, to know some main symptoms of porphyria, but also to know where they can get advice on how to diagnose, how to treat porphyria. So I think that's important. We have in this organization also now establishing a certification process for being porphyria expert center so that... We think that most of the new treatment for porphyrias should be given through these expert centers because uh, the treatment is uh, expensive. It's something that the governments in the different countries and insurance companies they want to have in some way control of the expenses. And therefore, it's extremely important that we choose the right patients that, first of all, that they are diagnosed correct. And thereafter, of course, that they get the right treatment for their specific case. Yeah, I mean, and, and like you say, so we want people to know about it and we want them to know who they need to talk to about it as well. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. If you would like to read this paper, please click the link in the podcast description or you can go to the journal web pages and search for key terms and definitions in Porphyria. All that remains for me to do is to say, Svara, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, as you mentioned, link, if I can just mention the link to our website, which is porphyria.eu. They can find a lot of information about porphyria. And we will, of course, also have this paper on this webpage. Oh, that's a spectacular plug. <laughs> and that will be in the podcast description as well. Well, well, thank you again. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.